Listener Production. A warning, this episode contains descriptions of forced adoption. Hi, I'm Amelia. Hello. Nice to meet you. <laughs> um, and we've got you here in WA. I'm speaking to Jennifer McRae. She's on the other side of the country in our Perth studio, just a stone's throw from where she was separated from her mum as a newborn. So I'm an adopted person, born in 1972 at King Edward Memorial Hospital, and I was held at Nagala, another craft home, um, for a number of weeks before I was collected by my adoptive parents. Jennifer didn't stay in Perth for long. She spent her childhood over four hours south of Perth, near a place called Albany, with her adoptive parents. How did you go about finding out you were adopted to begin with? So my adoptive mother sat me down on the porch and she explained to me that I was um, like one of the calves on our farm. You know how sometimes um, a heifer might refuse a newborn calf if she's a new mother or maybe the heifer dies for whatever reason and the calf's left without a mother. So she used this farming analogy, which at the time I totally understood because I'd seen it as a kid. But unfortunately, as I got a bit older and was able to understand that better, I started thinking that maybe my mother was dead, but also I could lose the adoptive mother I had, that she could die too. So I got quite anxious as a child. It was pretty destabilising. I don't think being told you're adopted at any age is good. It just completely, um, uh, it's hard to find the words to explain. You're not who you thought you were and nothing that you thought was real is real. It's a complete fabrication. I'm Amelia Robahart. This is Secrets We Keep, Shame Lies and Family. This podcast began with my own search for closure over my mum's early death. But it quickly revealed itself to be a much bigger story. It was the story of hundreds of thousands of women that had experienced the forced adoption era here in Australia between the early 1940s right up until the 1980s. Over the last two episodes, you heard the stories of the mothers. But I started to wonder about the children of those mothers who were now well and truly adults. What had their lives been like? And how had this period of history affected them? I just spent a lot of my time thinking about my mum, thinking about if I had sisters or brothers, where were they? Were they okay? Were they alive? How long would it be before I could see them? I always wanted to know where they were and and to meet them. When Jennifer was adopted in 1972, adoptions were still closed, meaning there was a layer of secrecy. Original birth certificates with the mother's name and the name given at birth were replaced by amended birth certificates, meaning Jennifer now had a new identity with her new adoptive parents. And did you ever seek to find your parents? Yeah, the minute I turned 18, I applied for my non-identifying information and it just turned out that around the time I was turning 18, 
our mothers in WA had lobbied the government and had lifted all of these restrictions around knowing stuff about your adoption. So I benefited from that directly, but I didn't know that at the time. Non-identifying information tells you things like the name you were given at birth and some, but not much, non-identifying information about your mother. I had to wait about a year before my information came through because so many people were applying for their non-identifying information and following that pathway to find their family. So they were overwhelmed with applications. So I had to wait another year. (laughs) No, it was terrible. I was in Perth studying nursing. I failed all my exams because I couldn't concentrate. It It was terrible. It was like waiting for Christmas that hadn't happened for 20 years. Jennifer had received a document saying her mother wore glasses for reading, had a family in good health, and enjoyed things like basketball, hockey and tennis. And I guess that is what they mean by non-identifying. It could literally be anyone. After receiving this information, a government counsellor then acted as a sort of go-between to Jennifer's mother and Jennifer to see if it was okay if she reached out. Her mum said yes. I was throwing caution to the wind. I didn't care if she was going to reject me. I just didn't care. I just had to know who I was, who I belonged to. Not long after that, we talk on the phone for the first time. Three hours, we spoke. Soon after that phone call, they met in person for the very first time. Yeah, I remember walking up to the steps of her little house and knocking on the door and, and there she was. And I met my siblings. And, yeah, we've known each other ever since. Annie, are you close now? Do you spend time with them now? It's been really interesting over the decades. So that's, we've known each other 30 years now. It started off very, very intense, like a honeymoon phase in a romantic kind of love situation. And I was really full on. Um, so I was trying to be the perfect daughter. I'd do cooking or babysit my siblings or pick her up from work or whatever it is she might need, I would pop up and save the day. And then as time passed and I moved away and started my nursing career and I wasn't in the city anymore, it became harder and harder to keep in contact. It was increasingly one-sided and I just kept plugging away, hoping things would change one day. (laughs) Yeah, it's really difficult. How did your adoptive parents feel about your reconnection with your family? Were they, um, you know, were they supportive? How did they, how did that relationship change or did it change um, once you'd found your mum? Yeah, that's a good question because that's quite um, a delicate balancing act for most adoptees. So they did get to meet my mum, um, They were all at my wedding, Um, so it was all very civil and polite, but I found out years later that my adopted mother had called my mother and pretty much told her, this is how it's going to work, you're going to do this, you're not going to do this, and Jennifer is my daughter. So she staked a claim on me, and I think that has inadvertently created this situation where my, my mum has been very hesitant to have the relationship that I wanted out of respect to my adoptive mother. After hearing from the mothers, I know how hit and miss these reunions can be. It's not always a fairy tale ending. 
it's often hard to overcome decades of disconnect. Fractured families and awkward tensions are more common than not. And how do you think being adopted has affected your life um, retrospectively? Every waking moment is viewed through the lens of being adopted. Um, Anyone who's listening who is adopted uh, will probably recognise a lot of these things. Um, You're constantly battling a dialogue of not being worthy, not being good enough, even though you rationalise, you know, know, the social policies that were around at the time that our mothers had no choice and that they were coerced into the adoption. The thinking of the time was that children were better off with a stable married couple, and that was in the best interest of the child. But I did wonder, were there guidelines on how to tell this generation of children that they were adopted? I went back to Teresa Bordell's archives. They were at the University of Melbourne. You heard some of them in the last episode. Bordell was a social worker that had been involved in adoption from the 1950s to 70s. Should a child know he is adopted? Yes, always, and always is now in capitals. If you do not tell him, he will surely learn the truth in the end or even suspect it, which is just as bad. The time to tell the child is as soon as he's able to talk by telling him he was chosen by you specifically. Wow. Really, it's saying essentially that it's important the child knows they're adopted but actually knows nothing about their natural parents. I don't know if I would feel better or worse if I was told I was specifically chosen. But, I mean, I think that would create way more questions as to why my own parents didn't choose me to begin with if I was so special. I think this whole language is just extremely misleading and extremely confusing for a child. If you have shown yourself worthy of his trust, he will be able to accept and assimilate the information for which he asks. But if, on the other hand, you have not told him the truth but have hidden it from him, he may at one stage turn against you, for the facts will become as a serious shock. And both boys and girls have become delinquent and even run away from home, learning too late and in the wrong way that they've been adopted. Do not cherish the illusion that the secret can be kept forever. Just because some random document recommended a child should be told they're adopted doesn't mean it happened. Can we just clarify your full name? Okay, yes. So my name is Danae Witherow. Just to start, do you want to just tell me a little bit about yourself? What was your childhood like growing up with your um, family? Normal, you know. I did normal things, you know. I, I was a dancer for a long time. My dad coached my softball teams. I was surrounded by four grandparents, you know, felt loved and just had quite a normal childhood, I, I, I thought. You know, never picked up on anything. Never had any suspicions? No, no. never. Never. And that's been, that was one of the hardest things for me to wrap my head around, the fact that for all my life I believed that I was biologically related to all these people. They lied to me every day there was a massive deception, like a massive cover-up. Nobody wanted me to know. Danae was 50 when she found out she was adopted, but she wasn't told by her adoptive parents. Last year in 2022, a close relative called 
and broke the news. Well, like I describe it as this huge hole opening up in the ground and just swallowing you up. It's just, it's just mind blowing. I wanted to know everything, everything. Like, who's my parents? Where do I come from? How did this happen to me? Why didn't I know? I made contact with lots of friends of the family and, and my cousins. And they're like, yeah, how come you didn't know? Because like, no one told me. And then I never thought to ask. Like, I just didn't think to ask. Why would you ask that question if you have no conception that that's your reality? I ring Department of Communities and say, right, I just found this out. What do I do? How do I get my records? What's the process? And they said, oh, you fill in this form and then you wait up to six months. And I just went, no, no, that, that won't be happening. I'm 50 years old. That means that my biological parents are going to be in their 70s, you'd think, or close to it. I'm not waiting. They said, yes, we'll do what we can. I sent emails to every member of parliament, my local member, the minister at the time for communities, and said, this is not fair, you can't do this to me. I've just found out. And so I had my info within about six weeks. And so I, I knew who my biological mother was. Danae's biological mother now lives in the United States. Danae uses the term biological because the relationship hasn't developed beyond that. The contact that I've had with her has been very limited. She's not dealing with all this very well. She hadn't told her husband of 50 years about me, but she since has. What Danae has been able to find out is that her biological parents had met at a party in the US. One thing led to another, and her biological mother then moved to Australia. It was here she gave birth to Danae and put her up for adoption. You know, my mother says it wasn't forced, it was her choice. So to me, whether it was forced or not, you know, it was forced on me. I didn't have a choice. Danae's biological mother didn't tell the father that she'd had a child. So it came as a surprise when Danae reached out to him. I was lucky, I suppose, because in my records, she named my biological father. But they both don't even remember each other. So I tracked him down. So I've got a half-sister on his side. And so everyone's in the States. He lives in Mexico. There's two things in Danae's life that have been forced on her. The adoption and not being told about the adoption. Danae's relationship with her adoptive parents was strained even before she found out. They've spoken once afterwards, but haven't spoken since. Well, you had 50 years to tell me on your terms. And so now the terms are on my terms. And when I want to talk to you, I'll talk to you. And are they trying to speak with you? Like no, no, no. I told them to, to leave me alone and, and they have done that. So now I need to take control of my life because everybody else has had control. To me, I still can't make sense of how 
nobody said. A, a few people have said to me, oh, but it wasn't our story to tell. And to me, that's a cop out. Like, if you loved me, you should have told me. My grandmother died when I was about 33. So nearly 20 years ago, she's been gone. And it still haunts me because I was sitting with her, you know, probably about a week before she died. And she looked at me with this look. And I was like, what? What do you want to tell me? And she just couldn't tell me. And I, you know, I'm like 99% sure that that's what she wanted to tell me. She wanted to tell me the truth. But she just couldn't. Danae and Jennifer were both adopted from a maternity home in Perth called Nagala. It still exists today, although now Nagala provides early parenting and early childhood support services. It's estimated that between 1,500 and 2,000 adoptions took place at Nagala from the 1940s to the 1980s. Nagala says the practice stopped in the mid-80s. And for Jennifer, it was revisiting Nagala, the place she was separated from her mother, that had set her on a new mission. In 2019, one sunny weekend, I decided I'd go for a trip down memory lane and pop into the Nagala headquarters there in Kensington in South Perth and uh, have a little walk around and see what it feels like to be back where I was taken from my mother 50 years ago. And I thought, I wonder if there's a, a plaque on the wall somewhere commemorating what happened here. And I was looking around and well, there was nothing. And then I kind of found my way to the front door. A worker came out and she asked me very nicely if she could help me. And I thought, oh, great, she'll know. And I said, oh, my mum and I were separated here in 1972. And I was just wondering if there's a plaque here for us. And she looked at me and her face dropped. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. She turned around, walked back inside the building. And I just stood there, my face <laughs> crestfallen and my mouth wide open going, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> and all the way home, I was just stewing over it and I was like, this is exactly what happened to our mothers when they first started speaking out about what happened to them. No one would believe them. No one would listen to them. They were getting gas lit left, right and centre. And... It doesn't really feel like much has changed if the very institution that separated me and my mum hadn't reconciled their own history with a simple plaque on the wall. Western Australia is an interesting case. In 2010, it became the first state in the country to issue an apology to those that had been affected by forced adoptions. And now apologise to the mothers, their children and their families who were adversely affected by these past adoption practices. But they had yet to hold a state inquiry to even delve into that system. On top of that, many of the recommendations of the federal Senate inquiry from 2012 still haven't been implemented in WA, or in many other states or territories for that matter. So all of the reforms that are needed legislatively, quality, services for counselling, reconnection services, and a variety of other needs and wants that just haven't even been looked at by governments is 
something that urgently needs looking at because we've got an increasingly ageing population of mothers. Adoptees, are, the peak was 1972, 1973, so a lot of us are kind of 50-ish. So we've got quite a few decades ahead of us. So we're going to take that baton from our mothers and we're going to carry on and we're going to finish this for them. In 2021, Jennifer started a petition calling for a WA inquiry. Mothers and adoptees both joined together, getting signatures for the petitions, writing letters to ministers and requesting meetings. Danae was at one of those meetings with a minister in December last year. I said to myself, I want this person to go home tonight and lay in bed and think about me. And so I was, you know, very passionate didn't get emotional, it was just purely telling her exactly how I felt and exactly how ripped off I feel about the government not doing their job, not looking after me. You signed off on this adoption. You said that I would be fine with these people. It turns out I'm not fine. And what are you going to do about it? And what are you going to do about all the other people that it's happened to? I want people to know my story. I'm not ashamed, I didn't do anything wrong. My mother didn't do it. I'm not ashamed of what my mother did. It was 50 years ago, it was a totally different time and no one was there supporting her. On the 21st of February, 2023, the Western Australian government announced it would hold an inquiry. A parliamentary inquiry into forced adoptions has received support from the state government. The Child Protection Minister is backing it to everyone's shock, then-Premier Mark McGowan told the assembled crowd he had personally had a connection to forced adoption. This is an awful thing that happened to many women, including my grandmother. And so inquiring into these things and providing some sort of truth-telling and perhaps some recognition is a good thing. The WA inquiry has just finished accepting submissions from affected people and organisations. At the time of recording, the inquiry said it would commence public hearings soon, but there's no date for when the inquiry will hand down its findings. I was interested to know what sort of change advocates were calling for. And there was a few dream items on their list. One of them is vetoes. Vetoes are something anyone in the adoption triangle can access. Adoptive parents, mothers and adoptees can all block each other from making contact. There's a patchwork of laws that govern those vetoes across different states. In Western Australia, old vetoes still exist, but you can't register a new one. So it's like having a violence restraining order out on you for your entire life. Simply because you were born or you gave birth, it seems very cruel and unfair. There's definitely a big push for it to be dissolved as a thing. Another big issue is birth certificates. These are hugely important for many adoptees and mothers. They're an acknowledgement that the mother had given birth and that the child was theirs. So my birth name was Elizabeth and yeah, everything got changed. The name that I was born with can't be used to identify me at all. You know, you get this birth certificate and it's stamped there, subject to adoption. You can't use it. That person doesn't exist. 
one of the Senate inquiry recommendations in 2012 was for all states and territories to introduce integrated birth certificates, which would have all the information on them, original parents, adoptive parents, and the adoption. Some states have introduced integrated birth certificates, but Jennifer says WA hasn't made it easy. So it's very complex. You have to jump through lots of fiery hoops of admin. And whenever I meet other adoptive people, their stories are the same. I said that it's so restrictive and problematic. Danae has another ask of the government to prevent other people experiencing what happened to her as a late discovery adoptee. Her ask is to put the onus back on the government to take the steps to tell people they're adopted. The government should have told us. You don't stop closed adoptions and just go, oh, bugger it, we won't worry about those people. We won't do it anymore because we know how damaging it is to children. And so we'll just, you know, those 40, 50 years that we did it, we won't worry about them. We'll just leave them be. Children need to know who their mothers are and not just because they find a DNA test or they get a random phone call from someone on a rampage who wants to rock your world. It needs to be done in a kind way. Those mothers who've never met their children need to have the opportunity of meeting their children. That's my big push as a late discovery adoptee. Open the files, contact those people. You know where they all are. You can find anyone. The big ask in the WA inquiry is to set up a redress scheme. It's a recommendation from the Senate inquiry 10 years ago. One that was, of course, then kicked back to the states to organise. Redress is compensation for wrongdoing. The only state that's made an effort is Victoria. Women who were forced to give up their babies for adoption in Victoria are being promised a special compensation scheme. In September 2021, a report into forced adoption was handed to the Victorian Parliament. The report recommended that the Victorian government, without delay, establish a redress scheme for mothers whose babies were forcibly removed. The state government will spend $4 million to boost counselling and design a compensation scheme. This redress scheme, it should include a monetary payment, counselling and psychological support. Unfortunately, there's little I can tell you about the redress scheme because it has not been announced yet. My name is Shakira Ramstall. I'm a solicitor at Shine Lawyers. I work in the public liability and social justice team. Despite the government agreeing to a redress scheme, it hasn't officially happened yet, and that's more than 12 months on from the government's announcement. A spokesperson for the Department of Community and Safety said they're still consulting to ensure the scheme is sensitively designed. Up until June 2023, there was one other option, mothers could have accessed what was called an Exceptional Circumstances Fund. It was a one-off payment of $10,000. However, this fund is now closed. It is unfortunately limiting. $10,000 in terms of treatment and support requirements doesn't get you very far. Shakira has been helping other people affected by forced adoption to get compensation through other channels. Namely, by approaching the institution that harmed the individual. It could be a hospital, a maternity home, or a religious organisation. And some of those institutions, they're quick to accept wrongdoing. But others aren't. 
they hide behind this legal principle called the statute of limitations in order to avoid any resolution. The statute of limitations limits how long after an injury you can make a claim for compensation. The statute differs depending on what state or territory you're in, and in Victoria, you've only got three years from the date of your injury to make a claim. It's 2023 now, and that window has long been closed. But my producer Ellen asked Shakira about whether any women pursued a claim at the time. Did any women know their legal rights within three years of their babies being taken from them and pursue that through the courts? I'm aware of a few of my clients who approached solicitors and asked for their legal advice and they were told that nothing could be done. Very disappointing and not accurate advice. You can't see my face, but my mouth dropped when you said that. (laughs) Yes. How did that... If it's not the right advice, why was it given? I think it was more no, there's nothing to be done, here's the door. There was a social stigma in relation to unwed, underaged mothers raising children. And I think that, unfortunately, bled into the legal sphere. And they were fine with that position that, you know, it was the right thing to do and you just need to move on with your life, was, I believe, what my client was told. At this point in the series, I'm not all that surprised that given the stigma that was around at the time a lawyer couldn't see wrongdoing when it was right in front of their eyes. Advocates, they want to see that statute of limitations removed. It would then make the institutions more accountable in whatever way that looks for each individual. No amount of money can make this right. And I think in a mental harm sense, you need to approach these cases with that way because any offer of compensation that's received is insulting. It could be 20 billion and it would be insulting. What we're hoping to get for our clients is an acknowledgement of the wrong and an apology, and that can be a huge, a huge thing, and security moving forward. Victoria is attempting to implement some of those recommendations from the Federal Senate inquiry more than a decade ago. But overall, no state has made all recommended changes. I don't quite know if I agree that legislation and laws should take 10 years to enact. But yes, there is a cynical part of me that questions the pool of those available to the redress scheme is limiting every day and reducing every day. For Western Australia, with the inquiry still in its early stages, it'll likely be some time before there's the change Jennifer and Danae are hoping for. In the meantime, Danae will keep fighting. I will shout it from the rooftops and I will shout it for those people who don't have that ability. Not everyone can say it out loud. Not everybody wants to. So if I have to be the spokesperson for late discovery adoptees, I'll do that because it's a story that needs to be told. And it's not just my story, it's every story. And every story is really crap. Whether you knew or you didn't know, some terrible things happen and my life was changed totally. Like, imagine, I'm not saying that I have a bad life and that I don't love my life, but I do wonder about how different my life would be if I'd stayed. I'd have a totally different accent, that's for sure. And one day, maybe Nagala will place a plaque. 
acknowledging stories like Jennifer's and so many others. I actually have an idea of a giant water fountain with fish at the bottom and a beautiful mother and baby right at the foyer of the front door. So if they need any ideas, that's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds beautiful. (laughs) In their submission to the WA inquiry on forced adoption, Nagala apologised They said they acknowledged that the actions of the organisation contributed to enduring trauma, shame, disempowerment, grief and guilt for all those affected by forced adoption. They said they're committed to working alongside survivors to support their personal journey of healing. In a statement to us, Nagala said they were exploring options for an appropriate location for a memorial plaque. In the next episode of Secrets We Keep, By the time we got to 72, this country was very well-versed in child removal at that point, and they were becoming very sophisticated about how those removals were being carried out. I'm finding out about another dark corner of the 1970s, the Stolen Generations. They asked for her to sign for the the injections, and then she signed, and then didn't realise but she'd actually signed away her rights. If this episode has raised any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you've been affected by forced adoption practices, call 1800 21 03 13. You'll be connected with the Forced Adoption Support Service in your state or territory. Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family is created and hosted by me, Amelia Roverhart. Producer Jake Morecambe and Bonnie Lavelle. Production assistants Bensie and Siebert. Fact-checking Bonnie Lavelle. Sound design and mix by Nal Fernandez. Executive producer Ellen Leibeter. With thanks to Tara Cassidy and Claire Weaver. Natasha Jobson is our head of news ops. And Melanie Withnell, head of news and information. You can keep listening to the next episode now. If you're enjoying the series, please leave us a rating or a review... You can also email us at secretsweekeep at sca.com.au.